Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sophie, and this is She's All Fat, the podcast for fat positivity, radical self-love, and chill vibes only. In this episode, we're talking with Sophie Williams, aka Official Millennial Black on Insta, about her upcoming book, Not Centering Whiteness, and the love triangle between fat phobia, racism, and misogyny. But first, it's time for our SIF book club. Every week this season, we'll be reading a chapter of Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia by Sabrina Strings as a team. And we want the Fatmily to do the same. Check the show notes for independent Black-owned bookstores to find your own copy. Folks in the Patreon Facebook group are talking about how the social idea of beauty was largely constructed by the patriarchy, even back in the Renaissance. Someone also mentioned the idea of the medium woman, quote-unquote, and how Dr. Strings notes that women were thought to be beautiful if they were, quote, not too fat or thin. Sound familiar to now, huh? Okay, here's some exercises from me and the SAF team. I wrote mine in the show notes so that I could use this time to also encourage everybody to read the introduction chapter if you haven't already. There's tons of important knowledge in there that'll help you frame the rest of the book. Lynn wants you to take a further look into the types of Renaissance paintings that Dr. Strings analyzes in the first chapter. That's linked in the show notes along with some questions. Then take out a paper and draw yourself. Think about what you focus on and why. Yelly wants you to journal about how art and storytelling play a role in perpetuating anti-Black racism in the second chapter. How has this changed from then till now? How has it remained the same? In what ways are we complicit? After you've done all that, or if you have a different reflection to the first couple chapters, please let us know. You can DM us, you can tweet at us, you can email us, you can go in the Patreon Facebook group, you can join the Patreon to be in the Patreon <laughs> Facebook group, you can call and leave us a message on our Google Voice answering machine. We want to hear from you and have this book club together. So thanks for participating, guys. A quick note on this episode, we don't really delve into it in the interview, but on Sophie Williams' Insta and in her book, she uses the spelling of women with an X. There are a lot of different feelings about the spelling in the queer and trans community. Some people use the spelling to stand for a radically inclusive definition of women. For example, including people who don't always identify as women or who societal structures fail to include as women. At the same time, some people believe that using a different spelling is transphobic, since you're potentially creating this new category of women when really trans women are women, and that's that. It's a complicated in-community conversation, so bear with us, but rest assured that number one, we have resources in the show notes for you to learn more about this, and two, both we and Millennial Black know that trans women are women and that feminism and queer activism don't exist without trans people and the trans community. 
Also, I'd like to note that the words obesity and overweight are used in this interview when referring to the medicalization of fat bodies. Okay, thanks for listening. Let's start centering some radical voices. All right, here we are. I'm here with Sophie Williams, another Sophie, to talk about her upcoming book, Millennial Black, which on Instagram is called A Manifesto and a Toolkit for Black Working Women, spelled with an X. Um, Sophie, can you say hi and tell us about who you are? Hi, yeah. So thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited. <laughs> um, so I am Sophie, like you. Um, good thing comes in twos, like Duran Duran. Yes. <laughs> Like you said, I'm the author of upcoming book Millennial Black, which is being released in April of 2021. The thing that's probably most interesting about me at the moment is the fact that I've got this Instagram account that's gone out of control. Literally a couple of weeks ago, Lynn was like, look at this cool person who follows us. And I was like, oh, she seems cool. And then Lynn was like, we booked her on the show. And I looked at your account and I was like, holy moly, all of a sudden she gained 150,000 followers. It's crazy. Yeah, it was absolutely insane. So I think maybe three weeks ago, maybe I had under 1000 followers. And then the sort of terrible, tragic, galvanizing murder of um, George Floyd happened. And the next day, I put up a post about allyship, because I felt like, you know, non white people had always been there doing the work. And I felt like so many white people were saying, I want to have these conversations, I want to do this, but I'm scared of getting it wrong. So I just put up a post about allyship and what that looks like and what that means and what that doesn't. And then I don't know what happened, but yeah, three, maybe three weeks later, I've got 150,000 followers. I mean, clearly your writing slash point of view, like connected with a lot of people who were, were like, help me and like wanted to share your stuff. And like, yeah, we'll get we'll get into all of that um, in the meat of it. But so can you talk a little bit about like, so you had the book before. So you're just your point of view in your book and your connection to fat justice or fat liberation so yeah the book is a manifesto and a toolkit for black working women as you say women spelt with an x throughout and it's just because i had had quite a long career in advertising i'd worked in various sort of positions i'd worked in various agencies and i eventually sort of made my way to be chief operating officer and i found that even though i was in that c-level position people were just not taking me seriously. They would expect me to make coffee. They would, you know, I invited someone up for an interview. I went to get them a glass of water, handed it to them. And they were like, okay, great. I'll just wait here until the people arrive. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm the people. You're like, yeah. I'm the people. I'm the people. Oh my God. Absolutely. So I sort of looked around, realized that there was nothing really aimed at black women. So that's something that I really wanted to write because I understand, or I hope I understand, and I'm coming to understand more, how our intersectional identities really play into our experiences and our workplace experiences. And so I guess the way that intersects with fat justice is, well, one, I'm a fat person. And so when I've been doing these roles, I've been a fat black woman. So sort of yeah, so my intersections have worked in that way as well. Do you talk about fatness in the book too? I will be honest, at the moment, I talk a lot about intersectionality and I talk a lot about how the different facets of us change the world's perception of us. But I don't think I explicitly call out fatness anywhere. And when you sent over your interview questions, I was like, 
okay, that's actually a really important area that I've overmissed explicitly talking about. I mean, fat justice is like the lens of this show. And so in my mind, it can be applied to like everything pretty much. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. And I do think that fatness and uh, non-whiteness are actually really, really deeply interlinked areas. So in the UK, for example, whilst 62% of all UK adults are likely to be classified according to the BMI, which we all know is a nightmarish made up system anyway, but they're likely to be to fall into the category that is classed in that way as obese or overweight. Um, But actually, 73% of black people are likely to fall into that category. In America, black Americans are 51% more likely to fall into that group as well. And so I don't think there's any coincidence that a system that was made to idealise and measure white populations then penalises black people in this way. And so I do think that race and fatness are really essentially interlinked. Yes. So, I mean, I guess those sort of origins of fat phobia are again linked to race. So we can look at people who were taken from the countries where they lived and they were brought over to be exhibited in freak shows because of their blackness and their fatness and the way that they work together. Like, it's a, it's a story as old as time, I think. Yes, it's all connected for sure. You know, this is the real shit. It's like, this is what we're working on. This is what we're working on dismantling. And um, that's why we work to create like a cozy feeling space on here so we can be tackling the hard topics and be taking care of each other at the same time. So to end our introduction before we get really into the meat of it, I want to know what one thing you've been doing to take care of yourself has been during quarantine while you, while we're all cooped up. So you might have heard me take a big deep breath then because I knew what you were going to ask and I know that I don't have a very good answer for it. I was thinking about it and to begin with, I was like, nothing. I was just like, you know, I've been doing all this work and it's been really hard and like all of this. Um, and then I thought of two things that I can say. And the first thing is, you know, those little like semicircular patches that you can put underneath your eyes? Yes. Love those. Okay, well, I didn't know about those until like two weeks ago. <laughs> so them, those are great because I've not been sleeping well. And so um, those mean that I can pop on video calls and do whatever I need to do without sort of showing what a mess I am. I love those, but I feel like so I feel like face masks always fall off my face in some way, unless I'm like lying down in particular. Those eye things, they like start up here and then they slowly end up like on my jowls, sort of. <laughs> they're, they're very soothing, but I have to kind of watch TV like with my head tilted back <laughs> with them on. I can see Sophie at the moment. She's doing a very fetching impression of her head being back. <laughs> So yeah, I also can't make sheet masks stay on my face. It's not where they want to be. Um, And so a few years ago, I was on a train and we were doing an overnight train and I put one on, which I wouldn't normally do. And my partner woke up in the train and he was like, what have you done? And it turned out that he thought I'd covered my face in ham. Um, So yeah, sheet masks, not the one, under eye masks. That's what I've been doing. (laughs) That's so funny. What have you been doing to help your brain rest or what are you going to do to help your brain rest now that we've brought it to your attention? So I guess that leads me quite nicely to the second thing that I wanted to say. 
Um, and that is, I have really been relying on what I call my lady gang. And so my lady gang is, um, I guess, a bit of a riff on Anne and Amina from Call Your Girlfriend's Shine Theory. It's just the people who absolutely have my back and I have theirs and the people who like say nice things about me behind my back. And so they've been amazing. That's awesome. Yes, friend support is very important. Shout out to your friends. Shout out to your lady gang. That's awesome. All right. Let's get into the meat of it. The meat of it. All right. So can we go back to your book? So first, I sort of figured out what I needed, essentially, because I, as I say, had a career in advertising. I was sort of in a C-suite level. I didn't really see this for myself. But then I realized that I needed something that didn't exist because so many books that are intended for women in their careers, when you sort of dig into it, they're intended for white women in their careers um, and white women, I guess, who aren't in any other marginalized groups. And one thing that really struck me actually was I was selling this book about blackness and womanness. And whilst I think everyone who came from publishers to meet me was a woman, there wasn't there was one, there was one non-white person in all of the people I was meeting. And that was like, that was a lot of people. I was really shocked by that, which I guess I shouldn't have been, being the person writing this book about, you know, diversifying your workplace. What were the challenges that you found from pitching a book that maybe, as you said, the people coming to meet you didn't personally relate to? Well, I guess one of the problems was that it didn't happen so much in meetings, but it happened to people who declined meetings. The message that I was given a lot is this market is saturated. So there's a book in the UK called Slay in Your Lane, which is not explicitly about business, but it's by two black women talking about sort of blackness in healthcare, in education, in work, in relationships, in dating, sort of all of these things. And it had been, it's, it's wildly successful. It's a great book. But because that exists, that one book, I was told time and time again, this is a saturated market. Because there's only one kind of book written by a black woman, probably. Because there is a book for black women by black women. That's so annoying. It's wild. And I think it's because of the makeup of, of publishing in general. It's a largely white, largely middle class space. And so... It's the same as when you hire one non-white person and you're like, okay, great, job done. It's like, we've got one of those books, job done. Yes, yes. Oh, it's so racist. That's not cool. I'm glad that you finally got through because if there can be a million of every other kind of freaking book for white people, there can be two books for black, millennial black women, like hello. Um, I have a question for you, which is, so obviously people are not a monolith. Can you talk to me about using the term non-white? I've read, done some reading from some people who say that like talking about non-white people still centers white people using the term non-white. Can you tell me about why you like it and what you use it for? I don't know if I do like it, to be honest, because they're entirely right. So in the UK, we say BAME, which is Black Asian Minority Ethnic. So I guess it's your version of people of color or BIPOC. I don't like it. It definitely makes two groups, white people and everyone else. But there are times when 
I need to talk about the experience of whiteness compared to the experience of everything other than that because whiteness is such an overpowering state. There are times when I do want to say um, this is what I've perceived about the white experience and this is what I've perceived about the experiences of every other group who were aside from that. But that's also because I don't think that all of our experiences are, say, are the same. I don't think that all of our expectations are the same. I don't think the way that society treats us all are the same. That's why for my book, for example, I'm looking explicitly at blackness and explicitly at womanness and I'm a very light-skinned, mixed-race woman with blue eyes. And so I sort of acknowledge my proximity to whiteness and the advantage that that has. And so I say in like my introduction, you are a black woman if you identify with blackness and womanness. Like, I'm not there to sort of judge who is black and who is woman. I'm ha very happy. It has to be a self-identity thing. So I do try and separate those groups out where possible. But also... Black women are an entirely under-researched group. Yes. Talk more about that. It's a little bit better in America. So in the book, I have to rely on some um, very American-heavy stats because there's a larger Black population. And so Black women are researched more because there's a larger overall population in America than there is in the UK, which is a much smaller group of countries. And so when research is done about women, when you look at sort of the, the data that's gone into that, you can see that it's largely white women and white cis het women. When you look at the research that's done on black people, again, if you dig into that, you can see that that's largely black men. And so, you know, all of the black people are men, all of the women are white. Black women fall into sort of that intersectional invisibility gap in between those. And so sometimes it's necessary to talk about BAME people here because we don't have those data sets that tell us what the black female experience is. And so we have to rely on sort of broader sets. So your book is focused towards a Black audience. Obviously, anyone can read it, but it's like focused towards helping millennial Black women. Your Instagram has done a lot of allyship stuff. So can you tell me why you felt called to post those things on Instagram or like what that pivot in audience has felt like for you? It was an accident. So just two things. First, the book is called Millennial Black, but it really does not put the emphasis for change onto the shoulders of black women. White people have to read it. White people in positions of power and leadership have to have to read it because black women are normally under promoted within businesses, which means that they're not in positions of power. So they can't make changes. And so there is that white audience there that has to be there if we're going to make change. And I think that is sort of the framing of why I wanted to talk about allyship because I didn't want to say to black people in the book or on my Instagram, here's what you've got to do. Because they know they've been doing it. Like we are, it's so tiring. <laughs> and, and we already know we've already been doing it. And so I wanted to say to a group that I'm not saying no one's engaged. So many people are engaged, but so many people are not. And I wanted to say, we we have to work together on this but it it's not always easy so 
I need to figure out how I can best talk to this audience, which isn't the audience I've traditionally spoken to. I need to figure out how I can say something that I made a post on allyship fatigue, which I had to take down because I got so much feedback from black people saying this is offensive, not because I was saying anything that was offensive, but because the the title allyship fatigue suggested to people that they could be tired and that meant that they could stop. And people, I was getting feedback from people saying they've, you know, these newly activated people have been working on this for two weeks. We've been working on this for generations. And I was saying, you know, I was not taking my own advice. I was being sort of defensive and being like, no, but that's not what I meant. And And that's, I just had to be like, okay, that is what people are taking from it. That is offending the audience that I am saying I want to amplify. I'm just going to have to take this down. And it's it's a constant balance between finding ways to engage and keep activated this new group that I feel a real responsibility to bring along for the journey without alienating the people whose voices have to be heard. Dang, that sounds hard. Too many white people are interested. It's not fair. <laughs> like, it, I'm, I'm into the problem. <laughs> no, I mean, it's true. But I have been thinking a lot um, and having conversations with my white friends about like I just I just feel like a lot of my friends who are white or people I know who are white are kind of just like freaking the fuck out right now like people who are trying to be helpful are you know what I mean like I think that a lot of white people are finally waking up but but then a lot of white people's in like inclination is to do something instead of to like listen. Do you know what I mean? And I don't think that's just white people. I think, you know, I have slides that are like, just listen, but it's all of our inclination, I think, to be like, I can help you. Look at me helping you now. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, like, listen, you also just learned about like, you know, prison abolition like four weeks ago. Like, let's not scream at each other, white people. Let's just like listen about this for a little bit. But I do think that um, people, a lot of white people are very looking for the quote unquote right way to do things right now. And it's like, there isn't a right way to do things. You just have to listen and try, like period. Yeah, I try to be really careful in my messaging because I I say you will make mistakes. You will say something that you think is right and you will be told it's wrong. Like me with that allyship post, I was trying to do something good. That doesn't matter. Like if it offends the people who you're trying to help, you've got to listen to them. And I would rather have not had to learn that lesson in public. But, you know, we're there. I've done that. I mean, I've done that millions of times. So much. We tell people all the time, call in and tell me what I said wrong. Just because, like, what are you, what else are you going to do? You know? You're going to act like you're perfect? No. I'd like to be. Like, I am sort of – in, like, my mental image of myself, I'm doing really well. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> you could be doing really well without being perfect. I mean, it's, like, impossible to be perfect about this stuff because, I mean, especially as a white person, I don't want to talk for anyone else, but – like we we caused this and we're not we haven't done great at uncausing it. So like we're not gonna do great at it right now, you know? I'm like, it's okay to mess up. That's why I'm like, I hope that I'm excited about the current moment in terms of I hope that like radicalizes a lot more people. 
Um, and I hope it also gives people like white, again, white people. I keep having to remind myself to say explicitly white people. Like I hope a lot of white people do things like read your book, read your post. I think there's a growing, hopefully, understanding that taking down white supremacy means not just being like, this is our table and we're inviting other people to it. It means like getting rid of the table and starting over. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really nice way of thinking about it. And actually, I don't know if you know Candice Braithwaite. Um, She's a UK black influencer. Her book has just come out called I'm Not Your Baby Mother. And she uses that exact analogy. So she's a really successful, just UK sort of diversity influencer, talking about motherhood, talking about sort of various racial issues. And she talks about when she arrived on the scene, the feeling of there being um, a table for one group of people that was sort of overflowing and there were gaps between them. And then a table for another group of people where she was sitting, where everyone was sort of huddled around sharing a KFC family bucket. And yeah, just again, having sort of the audacity to take herself up from that table and go over to the other table and say, there's space here and I'm sitting with you. So I guess what we need to do to further your analogy is not to say, yes, you can sit at our table, but to say, actually, this is all of our table. It's not, yeah, it's not our table. It's not our table anymore. Like we've got to get over that, you know, I think. And it's like once it, once you realize it's not your table, then you really, you're like, oh, (laughs) I'm not responsible for making a better system. I'm responsible for taking this one down and listening to other people. You know what I mean? Like when I've been doing work to try to look at my own sense of whiteness and my own sense of white privilege stuff, um, it has been like surprising to me how much like unconscious centering of whiteness I have. But that's something that I've also been accused of too. And I've had to sort of think about in myself because I am a black woman and I have always grown up in very white environments. And, you know, I got a lot of feedback that was like, you're coddling people, you're sort of, you're creating this sort of way of speaking where you're sort of uplifting them and centering people. And I had to sit with that and think about that and think, am I doing that? And I had to think, yeah, I think I am. I think I am so used to trying to make people who seem important comfortable that I've sort of adjusted the ways that I sort of behave and communicate to say oh are you having a hard time let me help you with that instead of saying why are you having a hard time this is come on I think it's just an ongoing process for a lot of people if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Okay, I want to bring in fatness again and talk about just like what we touched on before. I want to know about like in this moment what what or how you think fatness and your stuff relate and how you want to include fatness in it. I think probably the main way that I'm thinking about fatness and blackness at the moment is in response to sort of what we're seeing with COVID and the way that that reflects what we see from the way that groups are treated in sort of medical institutions as a whole. And that I think the crossover there is just without a lot of respect. So not only are black people more likely to be fat people, we know that those things are both not listened to as easily by medical professionals. We know that they're not treated as effectively. We know that, you know, we can go to doctors and be told that the the problem is our fatness. The problem isn't the things that are actually affecting us. The problem isn't the things that we are complaining about or reporting. As soon as we lose weight, things will be better. And I think that that really connects both groups in our experiences. I was thinking about this yesterday because... I, so I, like I said, when we were first chatting, I have a bunch of chronic illnesses and they, a bunch of them have been worse recently. And I've been trying to get into doctors to see people to figure out what's going on with me. Um, And I have, that's always a complicated thing for any, any fat person, because we're all used to having been dismissed or told that we, we just need to lose weight or whatever, right? But I was thinking about, okay, so I have to, like, content warning, I'm going to talk about a specific medical procedure. But uh, I have to go in and get a cystoscopy, which is where they, like, look up your urethra, like, with a scope because something might be wrong with my bladder. And I am very – I'm, like, nervous about it because of how many times I've gone in for a procedure and been told it won't hurt and then it's, like, really hurt. And I was thinking about that and then I was reading about the stats about doctors in the U.S. have been shown to perceive black people as sensing less pain. And I was, like, that's – it's so wild that, like, even – I mean, first of all, I am a woman and I'm fat. Those are, like, my my – two biggest axes of oppression, right? But I'm also white. I'm cis. 
I present as straight because I have a male partner, although I'm not straight. And I have, and I'm rich, so I can go to different doctors if I need to. And I still, I still struggle, struggle to get good medical care. I take my white partner to the doctor with me when I go because I have endometriosis and I had 15, 20, I don't know, and 32 now. So whatever that math works out at, uh, years of people telling me to take a paracetamol just to like, absolutely, just like, the, as we were saying before, the more intersections of disadvantage that you have, the less you are listened to, the less you are paid, the less you are respected, the less far your voice can travel, the less good medical care, a really basic right. I want to share again in the show notes that um, one of your posts that you sent over to us about how Black people in the UK are disproportionately being affected by COVID, which is also true here. Um, but just that chart you sent over was very, like, very visually yeah, effective. Insane. So, just to sort of recap on what that says, it's just, and again, it's using BAME because that is the sort of uh, data that's available to us. 14% of the UK population are BAME, so 1-4% of the UK population, but 44, 44% of NHS medical staff are BAME. And 70% of NHS frontline workers who have died of COVID are BAME. Wow. It's huge. 14% of population, but 70% of NHS deaths. That is, that's unreconcilable. What else does that say to you? Like, is there, do you have more reasons for that besides just like racism in healthcare? I think a couple of days ago, my answer would have been different. I'd have said, yes, it's about sort of occupational segregation. It's about the pay gap. It's about the ways that people are able to take care of themselves. But just earlier this month, because this gap is so pronounced, the government had to put out a report about it. And they put out a report that said that BAME Britons, which is a term I've never heard before, which is not like African-Americans. We don't we don't use that term. Um, were twice as likely to die from COVID if they caught it than white people. But when it came out, there was like a chunk missing. And it's since been reported that that was actually censored to remove information about the impact of structural medical racism. And so before I might have said, no, I'm sure there's loads of reasons. But now knowing that that was deliberately censored before it reached sort of public release, I think it's um, I think it's safe to say that medical racism plays a big part. Wow. Can you send that to us? We'll put it in the show notes. But I wonder if there's anything else I can do to be protecting besides like working on structural racism stuff. I wonder what else I can be doing to be protecting my black friends and fat black fat friends when they have to go to the doctor. So to me, something that's really important is about asking people how they want to be helped and helping them in that way. Because I think that is such a natural urge to be like, I can help and I've got all of these ideas. But I think these people have been living these identities their whole lives and they know, and maybe they don't, but we need to give them a chance to say, actually, this is what I really want. I really wish someone would do this. I really need this from someone. And not to say, oh yeah, but that's easy or that's nothing. We can do something else. But to say okay, great. I'll do that for you tomorrow. I'll do that for you in half an hour, you know, whatever. What has been helpful for you? Like what have your friends done that has been helpful for you? Um, so they've stepped in to do 
like physical like talent tasks so like people have helped me design things when I needed to do that super quick print deadline um my partner QCs all of my posts before they go out although they still have typos in them so not not acceptable work <laughs> um but like they just message me and they say like have you brushed your teeth yet or they say like you know it's just how much water have you drank just reminding me that i am still a person and i still have to do person stuff that's been sort of the most helpful stuff at the moment that's nice and yeah i mean we should be doing that too everyone should be doing that to your friends What are your top three posts that you want our audience, our family, to look at on your page? Or just top one, whatever you want to share. I think the first post that I made that sort of was about this topic is sort of a really good introduction to it, which is um, about just being an anti-racist ally and explaining the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist. I guess the next one would be about keeping up the momentum, because I feel like it's really easy to do it when there's a bubble around it, but when it becomes hard, long work, it's less easy. And then I think the last one would be um, for black women who are exhausted. Um, and that is something that just speaks directly to black women about the sort of deep body, emotional, tiredness that we're experiencing i think again not to make us a monolith but i think i think it is somewhat a shared experience at this point um and i think it's useful for other people to understand that and other and to understand what it's like to not be new to this fight okay we're going to share those this week and then also in the show notes and then the week this comes out we'll reach out to you for a couple more posts because you'll have written more by then because it's going to yeah. be because time marches on time stops for no woman it continues it has i have to, i do have to say that time the last several months has felt fake as shit <laughs> it does not right absolutely like, things have not felt normal in terms of time i've got a friend who insists and has insisted for years and she's not wrong that um time is a scam and a construct it's a scam Okay, I want to finish up by talking about your piece that I really liked, How to Cope If You're a Black Woman and Feeling Exhausted. I want to go through a couple of those tips. I really liked this piece that you wrote, and I was wondering if we could go through a couple of them. Um, okay, so this piece we're linking to it in the show notes. It's a lovely piece on Cosmo, and I also noticed that you had – the fee for it donated to the Trevor Project, which I loved that you did. I mean, I found this piece like lovely and soothing and I'm not it's – it's not for me, but I just thought it was like a really nice piece. So can you talk about some of these things that you think that it's important for like black women with an X and black women plus and black people to be doing right now? Yeah. So I realized that we were spending a lot of time – looking at black pain and I was spending a lot of time because that's sort of the way that my Instagram had developed talking to white people about things that they could do and I really wanted to make sure that I was talking to black women because 
all of the interactions I was having with people were them saying how, were us saying how tired and overwhelmed we were. And people, you know, people would will come to me still and they will say, what does allyship mean? Whereas it's so much quicker to type that exact thing into Google and read the first thing. So I really wanted to say like, it's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to say, I'm actually not your emotional support friend. I'm not here to make you feel better. And then to take some time for yourself to just do things that make you feel human. So that's like looking at beautiful things. There's like, was it hashtag black joy? Hashtag carefree black girls. Like all of these things are really great, rich seams of people just being happy. And that is something that I think has been missing from this conversation because it's really hard and it's really unpleasant to be sort of constantly bombarded with images of bodies that look like you or look like people that you love dying. And I understand that other people love people who are black as well. Like the day after George Floyd's death was reported, I just spent the day, <laughs> well, a big chunk of the day, hugging a cushion in the toilet, just crying. And because I was just seeing it so much and it was so hard. And so, yeah, the, the focus of this piece is this work is real. And if people who are saying they want to be allies are stepping up now, take a moment to relax, take a moment to do something else. Like I, when the pieces came out, was sleeping for genuinely like three or four hours a night. I was trying to respond to every single thing I was trying to do. Like if I can do one thing that keeps one person engaged, then that's worth it. And I was just so tired. So it's just about saying to people, to black women in particular, I know you're tired, resting is fine. There will be another fight tomorrow. And you have to take care of yourself if you can be there for that. I love that. Okay. Let's talk about how we can have the family support you. And then we're going to go and record our Patreon sleepover questions. So I hope people are listening to the Patreon so that they can hear that. But let us know. Tell people how to follow you. They just follow you. Well, it's linked everywhere all over this episode. But they'll follow you on Instagram and how we can pre-order your book if we don't live in the UK. So you can follow me on my Instagram. I don't have Twitter. I should have got it, but I didn't. So that's where we are. Um, and that is on at official millennial black, um, which is the name of my book, which is coming out in April of next year. As I was saying before, because the book is so far out in advance, I haven't currently sort of signed with a US publisher that is in the works. So as soon as I have an update on who we decide to go with, um, I will share a um, pre-order link there. And um, anyone who's not in America or Canada, there is a link to pre-order in my link tree on my Instagram. Great. And we'll put that in the show notes as well, for sure. Okay, other Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me and talking to our audience and being such a lovely Oh, thank presence. you so much for having me. Like thank I said, you. when you reached out, I was over the moon. So yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Yay. Okay, let's go on over to Patreon. Bye. And that's our show. Producing SAF in COVID times is made possible by our beloved patrons. Special thanks to Jill Rittersbacher, 
Sarah, Tay Byers, Anna Consort, Amy Shine, Kat Pause, shout out to Kat and her podcast too, Heidi Ernst, Jennifer Joy, Sath Trash, and Ann Flounders. This week, your call to action is a short reading from Wear Your Voice magazine. It's titled, What to Black Lives is the Fourth of July, and it was written by Antoine Heron in 2016. It starts with a quote from Frederick Douglass, who originally asked a version of this question. Douglass said, This Fourth of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems is inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Read, reflect, and share this piece over the weekend, the 4th. Remember that when we call July 4th Independence Day, who that independence included. She's All Fat was created by me, Sophie Carter-Kahn, and April K. Quio, who graduated. We are an independent production. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash she's all fat pod. When you pledge to be a supporter, you'll get all sorts of goodies and extra content please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super important in making sure people find the show so we can grow the family. Our ads are done in partnership with Acast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can get started at acast.com or send us an email. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the stuff we mentioned today. And don't forget to send us your questions via email or voice recording to fyi at she'sallfatpod.com. Our theme music was composed and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our website was designed by Jesse Fish, and our logo is by Hannah Sanger. Layla Oweda is our brand new editor. Lynn Barbera and Yelly Cruz produced this episode. Our thin crony forever is Maria Wortel. I am our host and co-producer. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter handles are at She's All Fat Pod. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay safe out there. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.